Coming up next, the bookening reads Anthropomorphic Children's Literature. Hey everybody, welcome to the bookening, and I'm a squirrel, and I'm talking- You're a squirrely. (laughs) Yeah, I am pretty squirrel. Well, squirrels just want to have fun, that's what I always say, and squirrel, 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 boy, love your squirrel. He was a boy, she was a squirrel. Wow. All the squirrel-related puns that you can make. (laughs) You may not be a squirrel, Nathan, but you sure are nuts. (laughs) Uh, well, our, our patreon just went to zero <laughs> that's amazing wow people people had their fingers on the, the triggers there <laughs> like, uh, nope <laughs> we're done uh listen folks we uh this is kind of like a watership down part one b because we want to fill in a little bit more sort of context and baggage before we get into the meat of a discussion that we're very excited to have, which is the Watership Down discussion. But we started to talk about anthropomorphic children's literature last time and didn't get that far. So I don't know. I do have a a message from my wife before we begin. Yeah. She says that if we don't stop saying uh, Dracula and Frankenstein during the Patreon stuff... Uh huh. She's gonna she's gonna stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's harsh. <laughs> that is. <laughs> she is tired of hearing those names. <laughs> so you know what I say to that. What do you say? Frankenstein. <laughs> Dracula. Oh yeah. You know you have to know when to retire something like that. And my we philosophy. Have... Go ahead. Well, my philosophy is to. Run it into the ground, but you never know what you have until it's gone. Yeah, you never know what you have until you've pounded it into the dirt. You can never really appreciate a horse until you've beat it to bloody horse flesh. That's right. That's my motto. You never. There's a shirt. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You can never really appreciate a horse until you've beat it into bloody horse flesh. You never know a man until you've seen his insides. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. That's right. <laughs> well, listen, we need to talk about we need to talk some more about anthropomorphic children's literature cuz uh, Watership Down is really really an interesting mix. Like it it tries to sort of portray rabbits as rabbits without adding too many human qualities to them. But then it creates this whole fake mythology and like they call the sun this and they tell these kinds of stories and they've got their whole like history and their <laughs> They're trickster and they're gods and they're Valhalla and everything like that. So it's kind of a weird hybrid answer because they're not like wearing clothes like Peter Rabbit. They're not hopping around. I don't know. Like Peter Cottontail? Like P- Peter Cottontail. Yeah. They're not just doing animal stuff like like Aesop's fables, but they're doing a lot of animal stuff. So 
I don't know. What other and thoughts? Also, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, but they're not completely human either, right? He's right. Uh, he's he's trying to say, well, it's true anthropomorphic in the sense that he's trying to say, what if they had some sentient, some consciousness, which we would say would be the anthropo part. Right. But also were still animals and had their own rabbit culture. And like I was saying last time, I, I like that because I think he really strikes that balance in this book. Um, they live in burrows. They still have the animal qualities to them. They have this weird religion and all these things that make it seem like, yeah, if rabbits had consciousness like we do, right? not human consciousness, but just consciousness, right? that this might be what they would be like, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I feel like we. T- I talked a little bit about the Green Ember last time, and I hope I didn't make anybody mad because my kids like that book, and mm-hmm. we have nothing against it. I just don't think that it's like I don't think that it um, hits that note the same way that this book does. Right. Because in the way, in the way you can tell is imagine if a human, if humans were to step into the same story, would anything change? Right. And with this book, yes, a lot would change. You can't imagine Absolutely. people acting this way, right? Right. It would seem weird and uh, and out of place. And that, but if you imagine people stepping into the story of the Green Ember, yeah, it would work just as fine. Right. You know, they can't jump as high, and maybe you want to have the birds that are their enemies. But there doesn't seem to be that same sort of innate understanding of that balance between this anthropomorphic stuff that's happening here, uh, like the uh, nuns priest tell and. Uh, with Chanticleer, it feels those are definitely animals in that right. story as well. And I think that for whatever we might say about the uh, tell what the the dung cow, mm-hmm. right? I think it manages to do this as well, maybe in a weirder way. I mean, there's some strange violence that happens with these animals, but <laughs> that's attempting kind of a similar trick where it's like they're animals, they behave and think like animals, but there's also this broader mythology to the whole thing, which is. Fascinating to me. I, I can't think of like I grew up reading the Redwall books. Did you grow up with those books? I never read them actually when I was young. Um, Redwall, my brother did. was your who did my brother. We 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 came across it because of the PBS series, right? I there think was some yeah some dorky. There was some animated series. Yeah, it was actually not bad, and um, so that's how we first discovered it. And then my brother got them and read them. At that point, we were too far along for me to be interested. You know, I was too old. Yeah, yeah, which so is fair. There's a four-year four gap between us. Yeah, and, and your brother's a dumb idiot. Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah, he's. We occasionally let him out of the um, mental institute, but usually he stays there. So. Right, you just throw him some Redwall books. Yeah, we're like Lenny and, Lenny and uh, what's his face. Yeah, it was tragic what happened to your brother. Ultimately, yeah, especially the fact that I. I really should have aimed better. It just made things worse. But yeah. 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 <laughs> I, was, I was just uh, enjoying that joke. <laughs> yeah. I was just <laughs> trying to figure out what just, I was saying. <laughs> I was just enjoying that. Honestly, Brandon, it's been a long day. My air conditioning went out. We had it replaced. I think we were talking about that off mic, not on mic. But my, my brain might be going a little slow right now. You know? I've had so, air conditioning issues in the past, and they're not fun. And make yeah. things hot, and and it's been hot and miserable lately. It's been in the nineties here. Yeah, it was. It's so. been in the nineties here. We're we're so, I'm south of you, so we're even hotter. Uh, you know what they call it when a bigwig trains his young rabbits t- to be warrior what? rabbits? Hair conditioning. 
Because <laughs> he's like, he's conditioning the hairs. I forgot. Was that really a joke in the book? Surely not. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's not in the book. Um, good. Listen, I read the Redwall books. I guess this is the point I was making 9,000 years ago. And in Redwall, what they do is every animal is a type. So weasels are sneaky and duplicitous and mice are kind of brave and stand up against the odds and badgers are big and burly and muscular and moles are loyal and thoughtful and hares are kind of fast and jumpy and all this sort of thing. So they live up to like their stereotypes. Yeah, they live up to their stereotype and every once in a while, because he wrote like 14 of those darn things, every once in a while somebody will break, you know, uh, a weasel will be brave or, or something like that just to show that we're not racist, but against weasels. But it's a whole different thing. I mean, generally they're they're wearing armor, they're wearing mail, they're, they're doing medieval stuff. I think with Redwall, it kind of works because each animal plays to its animal type. And so it does feel kind of animal-y. But ultimately, you could swap them all out with humans who had those same qualities, and the story wouldn't really lose anything. There's nothing intrinsically animal-ish about these things, yeah. I mean, there is a little bit. You know, there's like a sprinkling of it. You know, the big cat bad guy in, in, in Moss Flower drowns. You know, she's scared of water because she's a cat. There, there'll be little things like that, but you kind of forget that they're animals. So I suppose it's probably similar to what you're saying with... With green ember. Well, and yeah, and a lot of, an- I mean, most anthropomorphic literature plays off the animal types. Like what, the Jungle Book did that right. a lot. Right. So each animal would have a characteristic that made it. So the monkeys, and you don't pay any attention to the monkeys. And then when they do, of course, things go poorly, you know. Right. And uh, and they're generally tied to what we as humans think of those animals. And so we're just literally... I mean, the whole meaning of anthropomorphic is to make them into human, have human-like qualities. And the way we do that is by seeing how they behave and imagining what they would be like as people. Mm -hmm. Um, And the difference with the Jungle Book and what you're saying about Redwall, though, is that um, the Jungle Book doesn't have those. So I guess you have different categories of this sort of anthropomorphic literature. You can have the ones that go for that sort of animal consciousness realism like you see in Watership Down. Right. You have the ones that kind of have a mix of the two. Mm-hmm. So in, they may lean towards the stereotypes like Redwall or Jungle Book. But right. then they might. Then, then there's also the ones that give them human clothing and characteristics like that. So Redwall would fall into that category with the stereotypes. Wind of the Jungle Willows. Book doesn't really give them human clothing. Yeah, Wind of the Willows. Have you, have you read that? It's been probably 30 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, it's been I was a long man. time. We should do it probably. I don't know. I don't know why we've never thought to do it on this podcast, but because pe- people love Wind in the Willows, right? Oh yeah, people do. They love it a lot, and it's one of those that I need to read with my kids. I just never have gotten around to it. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure I would love it. I'm pretty sure I did love it. I just I, I, I sort of remember the Disney movie, but I don't remember a lot about it. Well, it's Otherwise, one of those that, along with Frog and Toad, are really loved by the like, kind of classical homeschooling crowd. Yeah, they, but I didn't. The Wind of the Willows, they love especially because uh, C.S. Lewis loved it so much. Right. Which is uh, fair enough. But mm-hmm. so I, I I love Frog and Toad, by the way. I just want to say Frog and Toad kind of slap. Frog and Toad rule. Mm-hmm. I uh, I love Arnold Lobel. As, as far as picture books for children go, 
Arnold LaBelle would be my personal, maybe number one. I, I think I might put him over Dr. Seuss. I might put him over a lot of things. I really like Frog and Toad. So shout out to classical education freaks who like Frog and Toad. Yeah. Good for you. And you're not freaks. Brandon never should have called you that. Uh, yeah, I should never have said that. That definitely was my voice saying that. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, where were Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just saying, but yeah, I think I think you're right. I think they're right there. Um, Frog and Toad fall into that, giving them clothing and like humans, but also at the same time allowing them to be animals in their behavior. The Frog and Toad kind of he he's interesting because he they have human clothes and all that, but also there is some Frog and Toadishness to their characters. But he also just completely comes up with like who Frog is and who Toad is. He gives them completely individual characters apart from their animal nature, I think, right? That's kind of what's endearing yeah. about them. But yeah, that's what's so lovable about them is uh, Toad's grumpy, misanthropy and Frog's optimistic outlook and yeah, all the all the weird insecurities and bitternesses and the time that they tried to le- learn self-control by not eating cookies. And yeah, yeah just good yeah, stuff. That's true. Good stuff, good stuff. Frog and Toad, we should, uh, we should litigate Frog and Toad on another podcast, but uh, Frog and Toad are great. Um, which one of us is Frog and which one of us is Toad, Brandon? I don't know. No? We both have a little bit of Frog and Toad in us. Yeah, I think, you know what, I think Jake's Frog, probably. Is Jake Frog? I mean, Jake can be pretty Toadish, come to think of it. And I don't mean like the character in the book, I just mean Jake has giant warts on his face. Yeah, he eats lots of flies. He eats a lot of flies. He's been dissected in various experiments. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, but he doesn't usually like to talk about it. No, and we we probably shouldn't talk about it for him. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Why do you think people are so intrigued with anthropomorphic animals? Like, what's the attraction? Why do it? Like, what is what is the instinct? Because it's it's as, at least as old as, as Aesop and the Greeks and all that. Um, well, part of it is. As you're looking for stories and with stories, you're looking for metaphors and um, you're also looking for stereotypes and archetypes and all these things that can um, help illustrate human nature, illustrate human characteristics. And so one way you do that is by looking to animals and saying, look, the tiger there represents anger. Mm -hmm. The cat there represents uh, craftiness. what you know, and so then you throw those in there, and you show what happens when these animals interact, and so then you can get some sort of parable or story out of it. That's definitely what happened with Aesop, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I also think that we just have a tendency to want things other than ourselves to have the same sort of narratives we have. Yeah, and so we do look to animals, and we we would like to think of what would it be like if they have the same sort of stories and consciousness that we have. What would it be like to be a human, but also have the limitations of a squirrel, right? Yeah. And um, so there are those two different aspects to it. One is just human curiosity and the desire to find different ways of telling stories that are entertaining around a campfire, but then also our drive to try and find ways to teach and um, instruct through story as well. And animals are just a really useful way of doing that. Yeah, it's interesting as you were... So. Yeah, it's interesting the the human instinct to personify absolutely everything. I mean, to you know, someone will say the stapler looks sad today, or 
oh man, yeah. the cat hates me or man, my car just won't cut me a break. Like we, we want to give human attributes, not just to animals, but to, to absolutely everything. And yeah, it's we, just a very, that's why it's a rhetorical device. Um, it goes along. It's yeah, it's broader than just, uh, um, anthropomorphism. So the actual rhetorical term for it is prosopopoeia. Mm-hmm. I've actually never looked up how to say it. Let's see. All our listeners see. just shook their head at dis- in disgust at that pronunciation. They're like, come on, man. We all use this word so every day. Presopopoeia. Presopopoeia. Ooh. Sopopoeia. Have you ever had a sopopoeia? I've never had a sopopoeia. Sopopoeias are amazing. Uh, anyways, a sopapilla is a little uh, Mexican pastry. It's like a puff pastry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. A little bit of uh, brown sugar and stuff on top, or cinnamon and sugar, and then you're supposed to break it open and pour honey inside of it with a little bit yes, of butter. Yes. Yeah, I've seen great. these. Yeah, great. Anyways, prosopapilla. Ooh, prosopapilla. Anyways, I keep making myself hungry every time I say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. So a figure. So the, the the literal definition of this is it's when a an, an abstract thing is personified, mm-hmm. or an imagined or absent person or thing is represented as speaking. Um, then you also have so th- that's a form of personification. It's generally though like an abstract thing that's doing it. What's an example of an abstract thing like liberty, like Lady Liberty, or yeah. something? Is yeah. that love, liberty, something like that? Love, liberty, wisdom, um, wisdom. There's lots of wisdom, you know, wisdom. Wisdom cries out yeah. in the streets from Proverbs 1. Wisdom is personified. Yep. Let's see. So is personification the broad category then? So here's an example from Shakespeare. The iron tongue of midnight hath told 12. Lovers to bed, tis a most fairy time. Mm-hmm. So midnight's this abstract voice that there takes on, um, takes on a voice. Uh, let's see. Some of these are saying it's a figure of speech in which an absent or imaginary person is represented as speaking. What's an example of that? Like if Brandon um, was here, he would say this? Yeah, where you take on the voice of someone else who's not there. Like William Shakespeare is probably spinning in his grave? Yeah. Let's see. So the easiest means to prosopopoeia in moving pictures is using animation to give human shape and motion to lifeless things. A train at the top of a hill sniffs a flower before swooping down the other slope. Holsters even spread themselves to receive Panchito's revolvers. A steam engine is given eyes. Piston chambers that thrust like feet. Okay, that's not helpful. Um, quality, especially those. Advice. The majority of authors usually distinguish between two medallions. Oh, man, this is complicated stuff. Direct discourse or indirect discourse? Huh, this is interesting stuff. I've never looked at this all that deeply is there's always something new to learn nathan isn't that fun there's there is always something new to learn and it is fun so what do our listeners need to what's the what's the distillation here oh anyway so i'm just i'm still trying to i'm still trying to figure it so basically prosopopoeia it's come to just be a broad application of personification anyways uh but apparently it's more complicated than just that but um, all I'm saying is that it stretches beyond just animals. We like to give attributes to all sorts of different things. Um, and uh, John Ruskin, who was a famous thinker in the 1800s and was a tr- uh, part of the, uh, um, not the Romantics, but the uh, Dante, uh, Rossetti and those people. 
the oh the um what are they um, those guys called the uh oh, Dante what, I, what? Rossetti. You know what I'm Dante talking about, Rosetti. right? Yes, he, I, I know exactly what you're talking he about. Was, I just he, can't. Oh, well, he's part of the pre-Raphaelite people. Yeah, the pre-Raphaelites. The, um, but sorry, I was looking. So the and so John Ruskin he wrote a lot of um vital. He's the one who wrote a lot of the books that would become foundational for the way that people thought of art and um, literature in the eighteen mid eighteen hundreds. He was one of the first literary critics. He wrote a book, I think it was in his book Modern Painters, where he talks about something called the pathetic fallacy. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's pathetic; it's where we take our feelings and we put them onto inanimate things. Because he was talking about waves at that point, I think, but also animals in right. art and literature, and so. Um, it would be a species of prosopopoeia, I think, but he gave it the name pathetic fallacy. And I thought that was, that's a useful way of thinking about it because it is a fallacy in the sense that these animals aren't actually feeling these things, right? You see a dog looks like it's smiling. It's not actually smiling, but we like to take those things that look human and then attribute human feelings to them. And so um, for Ruskin, that was the pathetic fallacy. So anyways, for him, all these children's books are are uh, committing the pathetic fallacy, and and by fallacy does he mean like we shouldn't do it? Like it's 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 no no. He's it's just a way of thinking um, of when you would say something like the clouds seem sullen or when the leaves dance. You know, right? Um, it's a so the clouds aren't sullen. The dog's not actually laughing, right? And so it's a fallacy in that sense, but it also allows you to say poetic things about them. It's a, it's a type of metaphor, but right. it, is, it is a fallacy in the sense that you're not saying anything metaphorically true. All you're saying is that the, I guess it's, it kind of is like what, um, the pathetic fallacy, I guess, is very related to what C.S. Lewis talks about in the um, abolition of man at the beginning, mm-hmm. where he's talking about uh, those two the- schoolmasters who were writing that book, and they, mm-hmm. they would say, no, the um, the waterfall is not sublime. You have sublime feelings about the waterfall, right? Right. And he disagrees. C.S. Yes, Lewis he, does. He but, rejects that. Um, here, Ruskin would be saying that, no, I mean, the clouds aren't sullen, but they do make you feel sullen because they right. seem sullen to you, right? And I don't know if C.S. Lewis would have a beef with that, actually, because I don't think he would think that clouds themselves are sullen. No, I think... I think Chesterton might, because Chesterton is a, has enough of a poetic soul that he would say, well, God just made the clouds to be sullen. I mean, I think yeah. he might actually go that far. I'm putting words into Chesterton's mouth here, but I, I think he might actually say, oh, yeah, no, God made dogs to evince loyalty in such a way, not, that, not so that we can read it into their weird animal instincts, but he actually just made it so that we can, th- you know, weasels are cunning, lions are noble. Clouds are sullen. These are all actual things that can be said to be true in some ontological sense. Um, maybe instead of ascribing that to Chesterton, I should say, eh, it's kind of what I think. I think God made a big old world of things for us to go out and personify. I mean, I think these types are so reoccurring and so universal. Like, nobody sees a lion and doesn't think of kingliness, for example. So I have to think that kingliness was built into the creature somehow that the creature was built to represent kingliness if that's not the workings of a air conditionless brain tired brain yeah 
Sorry, I'm really running down another rabbit trail, but I should. A rabbit trail? Yeah. <laughs> it's just oh, fascinating. Man. So prosopopoeia means literally putting on a face. Like, so it's the way that, so prosopopoeia really is, uh, man, there's a lot to read. So I'm, this, this will be for another, this will be for another episode. There's a lot to think about here that I didn't realize prosopopoeia was this broad. Mm-hmm. But personification, like this person here is arguing that, so it literally means prosopon to, to the face or person to make. So it's like, it means to take on the face of another. It can right. be to take on. So they use the book of, um, they use the vo- voice of wisdom in the Bible, mm-hmm. in yeah, the yeah, Proverbs. Yeah. That's a type of prosopopoeia, right? Mm-hmm. But this person's arguing that any sort of narrative writing, like Jane Austen, when she's writing in the indirect style, is doing a sort of prosopopoeia because she's taking on the face of her characters, which is huh. really interesting. So prosopopoeia really is kind of a fundamental aspect of all literature, kind of a make-believe, pretend, yeah, you, which is why some, that, hate, why some people hate uh, why some people hate literature, because it's just lies. doesn't give you the truth. Yeah, well, those people can take a walk, walk in the sticks. Hey, Shakespeare, why don't you give us the truth? Yeah, come on, Shakespeare. You're lying to a Shakespeare. Yeah. Anyways, but well, I how do you enjoy spell that? animal. What? How do you spell that word for our listeners who want to? Yeah, so it's P-R-O-S-O-P-O-P-O-E-I-A, prosopopoeia. Mm-hmm. Very similar to onomatopoeia. These are the rhetorical figures that they would have taught in uh, Roman schools when they were trying to train their orators. Hmm. So these are the things you could have used to spice up your speeches. One of the tropes. So anyways, but it's related broadly to this discussion of animal literature. So, because we like to take on the face of things. That's part of it is it's a, like we said earlier, it's as you tell stories, you like to be creative and find different ways of telling them. And so you try to take on and give life to different things. Mm -hmm. And that's part of animal literature and part of what um, these stories are doing. Is that taking on the face of something else? So then you can use that to say something you wouldn't otherwise be able to say as clearly. I mean, think how many of Aesop's fables have stuck with you, you know? Right. Like the lion and the mouse or the tortoise and the hare and all these fables or even Beatrix Potter's stories. A lot of it has to do with the animal qualities, but also because like any good metaphor or symbol, they... um are able to really hone down and get at that uh, essential thing easier right. than just saying it abstractly. Yeah. Which I think explains some of your disdain for that horrible book that only bad people like uh, Green Ember because they're, I, th- I think that's what you said, right? Th- that's, that's what I said. Was that about it? No, that's <laughs> not exactly. That's not at all what I said. Yikes, Nathan. I think you said really like, I want to start a flame war here. Like the thing that should have been printed on toilet paper? No, that's not what I said. I enjoyed <laughs> listening to it in on audiobook form with my kids. Yikes. Uh, um, Am I not allowed to have some minor criticisms of things that people adore? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I am uh, actually. No, I don't. Sorry. We, I don't. I don't know that we've ever been allowed to have minor criticisms of things that people adore. If there's one thing that gets us in trouble on this podcast, it's. Minor criticisms of things that people adore. Uh, But but, but, people out there now that think that I hate S.D. Smith. Where did they get that idea from? 
And so then that just makes me mad. It makes me want to lean in more. You know yeah, what? Well, <laughs> yeah. It should have been printed on toilet paper. <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. You happy. Yep. I'm happy. Uh, oh, well, the, the, the minor criticism that one might make is, um, ah, whatever, folks. It's been a long day. I lost my train of thought. Forget it. Just forget it. What else do you want to say is about? That, oh, it's that he's not doing any prosopopoeia. He's just. Can, yeah, he's just like. A, it's a form of elision in the sense that one's just stepping in in the place of the other without any, without any way to have that otherness allow there to be something about the story that reveals something that wasn't there before. Right. He could have just had and, it be King Arthur. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, there's something a little clunky at, at, at best and irresponsible at worst about uh, wielding a perfect metaphor to absolutely no purpose. You know, having nothing to say, but using the signs and symbols that should have some signification attached to them is kind of silly. But The Green Number is great. It's it's the best book that... <laughs> lots that, and lots of people really like that book, Nathan. We're getting ourselves into some hot water here. You know, I don't even hardly know what it is. I know Bill Murray was in the movie. Was Bill Murray in the movie of that one? I don't think there... Was there a Green Ember movie? I think there was a Green Ember movie. I don't think there was. Okay, so, so I don't even know what it is. Green Ember, Bill Murray. What happens if I put it, that in? Nothing. Uh, City Bill of Ember Mur- is what you're thinking of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's different. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what Green Ember is. I, I, I know it vaguely as a thing that people like that should that Brandon thinks should be printed on toilet paper. It's not... <laughs> That's not that's not anything that I actually believe. I would gladly I, the, I will recommend those books. People, you'll enjoy them. Just know that it could have just as easily been about human beings and it would have been the same story. Right. <laughs> yep. Which is which is which is silly. And uh, I think so the author there, should be fired into the sun. There are going to be people who disagree with me about that. And yes, of course, it wouldn't be the exact same story. You would lose some sort of animal quality to it. All I'm saying is that he, obviously, the fact that they were rabbits and in an animal world was not as important to him as the story about the green ember that he was telling. That's all. Right. Well, we'll discuss this more in our discussion of Watership Down proper. But one of the things that makes that story such a joy is is in fact that it's rabbits like all the hero's journey type stuff is recast and recontextualized in a really beautiful moving way precisely because he's using rabbits doing rabbity things and i know that sounds like the most simplistic thing that i could have said about the whole thing but uh, we'll talk more about it when we get to watership down when we get when we get more into the meat of our watership down when we tear that rabbit open and eat I think, its I, I, think I can actually see your flesh, H. Vacless brain leaking from your nose. That's yeah, true. It's just melted. Yeah, boy, folks, I I can't string together a coherent chicken. I think the only things that we haven't said about this yet that I would want to say one is that E. B. White really got it. Did he know? Um, wow, you disagree, huh? Well, I agree that he got it in Charlotte's Web, but what about that dumb? I mean, that's what I meant with Charlotte's Web. <laughs> Yeah, so but let's, uh, let's, let's, let's talk let's about qual- Louis the Swan. No, no, let's not. Let's <laughs> pretend that never existed. Let's go back to well, let's well, talk can about I just, the beginning of Louis the Swan. Well, can I just point this out, though? That's precisely actually what rang so weird to us about Louis the Swan's story was that it starts out being about 
an animal that behaves like an animal. And then at a certain point, it weirdly crosses the line into being just this purely fantastic thing that has nothing to do with swans. And, and yet, you can tell that E.B. White really likes swans and also wanted to write a book about swans and then just like hit his head and got confused and threw a bunch of stuff in. It's like he wrote one book that's in the red wall or, or, or just in the wind in the willows mold, which is Stuart Little really doesn't have anything to do with a mouse. And then he wrote one book that's just a perfect evocation of animal life, slightly personified, which is Charlotte's Web. And then he tried to split the difference like a moron in Trumpet of the Swan and wasted everyone's time. What a moron. Worst yeah. writer ever. More like E.B. Blight. Bites. Yeah, E.B. Bites. Um, anyway, you were saying. Uh, and then also uh, Beatrix Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that C.S. Lewis points out in his essay on stories is that there's something about, or maybe it wasn't surprised by joy when he read Beatrix Potter, Squirrel Nutkin for the first time. But there's some elemental quality about autumnness that's in that story. Mm-hmm. The leaves and the woods and something that she's able to capture about autumn colors and autumn smells and autumn feelings that is just autumn. And I do think that there's, I mean, I think that gets at kind of what we were saying with the through these animal stories, these authors are able to tap into some really fundamental and essential qualities in the way that poetry does, you know, Mm -hmm. abstract makes the abstract concrete. And I do think that there is a way that these animal stories do that. So, um, there is something about the British hill country that seems very much now tied to Watership Down in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, I mean, if I were to ever visit that, um, and in that sense, I think that's what anything that's not trying to be realism in the sense of um, a novel. I mean, because think about the British countryside is also always going to be tied to uh, Lord of the Rings to me as well. Yeah. There's just something about fantasy and things that try to, by becoming something that's completely other to us, they also make the familiar both less familiar and then also refamiliarizes it in a new way for us. That's the whole process of defamiliarization. Mm-hmm. You make it strange only for you to see it anew and learn something about it that will then remain with you for the rest of your life. Right. Like, I don't think I could ever go to Russia in winter and not think of the Troika ride. Right. And War and Peace. Or cut wheat with serfs and not think of... Yeah. What's his face? Levin. Well, my brain's leaking out my ears. Anything else to say about... No, I think we should get you to bed, Nathan. All right, we'll get me to bed, but uh, I think we better do to do a donor shout-out, and we better not anger your wife and make her never listen to the show again. So, okay. I don't let's know. Just, let's just shout them all out at once. Shout them all out? Yeah. I think that's right. the easiest, safest way. Just, just do all the names at once? Yeah. Okay. One, two, three, go. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Dracula. No, ah. Anna. I'm sorry. We never knew the. She we never just knew the, off the show. Rudolph the show. What? She just turned off the show. Rudolph the show. Hey, there is one other piece of business, which is well, two other pieces of business. Number one, go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support this show and uh, to uh, all that kind of thing. And uh, number two, um, oh, right. 
I have a, another patron. I have, I have a new patron to really welcome to the fold. Yeah, so that's this is true. And her we name. Should shout them out. Yeah, exactly. She she should get her own shout out. I think. Um, well, and we called her. The, she actually came last week, and, and we introduced her. But the thing was, her name was displeasing, and to her. So to her, yes. And she she reached out and said, "You guys are even dumber than that book, Green Ember." And wow, yeah, that bad. She said, there are four things that I detest. They are Hitler, yeah. Vomit, wow. Green Ember, wow. and the shout-out that we name that we gave her. Yikes. Yikes. And, and so, well, what she actually said is, I don't really know who Eminem is. Like, I'm, I'm not actually oh. 90 years old like you guys are. And uh, we gave her an, 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 an Eminem-related... A shout out and she she didn't put it that way she was very gracious but she just said i think on the podcast i said maybe we can do better and she said yeah yeah i think you can do better is her name M emily is that it yeah yeah it's emily let's call and her so, m spaghetti m spaghetti you know mom's spaghetti never mind that was an eminem reference you gotta Brandon's lose back in the moment back the moment again on it Never let it it. go. You only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to glow. This opportunity comes when it's a life, once in a lifetime. That is, that is lyrics from that song, from the Eight Mile song. That was from Hamilton. (laughs) Is that really from Hamilton? No. (laughs) Okay. It'd be funny (laughs) if it was. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have seen that one, actually. Yeah, probably not. Y'all act like you've never seen a white person before. Nah, I was going to do some lines from Slim Yo, Shady. But. Anyway. We are going way off the rails here. Yeah, I'm sorry. My brain is, you know, sometimes my brain is leaking out of my ears and like an, an entertaining, we can just keep doing the show kind of way. But today, my brain's just leaking out of my ears. So we'll, we'll, we'll wrap her up, folks. But I hope you learned something about uh, uh, Prosciutto Co. Um, and, uh, uh, oh, Emily, we have to give her name. Yeah. How about Nightshade? How about M. Nightshade, uh-huh. the Haunter of Dreams? Say it again. M. Uh-huh. Emily Nightshade, uh-huh. the Haunter of Dreams. I love it. You love it? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> we've got a love. Brandon loves it. Okay. We can call her M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Uh, do yours. I don't think she. I mean, she'll probably be like, "Who's that?" Yeah, I know. I wasn't. I'm not 90s years old like you guys. Then we did have she to really explain say that about us. No, no, no. She did not say that. I'm putting words in her mouth. She's very gracious, very kind, and she's been a longtime supporter of the show in various forms. It just hasn't been on the patron list for a while, so or the donor shout out list for a while. So she's great. We love Emily. We love all our Emilys. We love the other Emily that we uh, welcomed in last time. The uh, uh, But enough. We've got enough Emilys. We've tapped out on the Emilys. Yeah, there are no some, some more Emilys allowed. You know, if you're an Emily and you want in, you should try it. You should try to give us money and see what happens. We'll send it back. Yeah, we'll send it back now. Uh, no, uh, that we, we still have a man in possession of an Emily is in want of nothing. And we have all about the Benjamin. These are the new ones. And uh, we have now 
Emily Nightshade, the Haunter of Dreams. Mm. So welcome, Emily Nightshade, the Haunter of Dreams. And maybe the best one ever. Maybe the best one ever. Maybe the best one ever. We do need to elect just to spite Jeremy for dropping us. We need to. I think we do, we need to elect a new dark coated Lord of Death. Ooh. Is so, he gone for good? Is he not on there at all? I don't think. He, I think. I think he just dropped us like a hot potato as soon as he married Maya. No, no, she doesn't get it. She does not get a shout out. That's true. That's not but her you, fault. No, it's not her fault. He's the. He's she, the federal. I, mean, I guess, except she married the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. What did she expect? Yeah. Well, I don't know. She probably expected him to keep supporting her favorite podcast, but he didn't. He didn't. He's too busy eating cicadas. He's too busy eating cicadas, and that, folks, is not a lie. No, not at all. That sounded like it should have been, but it wasn't. <laughs> no, no, no. He started like a little side business making cicada-related food, which has a bit of a shelf life, I would think. But hey, I don't know. Maybe he's made a million dollars. Brennan's shaking his head <laughs> and making a very... Uh, Robert, I'm going to say a Robert De Nierian, uh facial expression. Brandon is making. So I try to get anyway, fo- and they pull me back in. <laughs> and he's quoting lines from Al Pacino. <laughs> eh, you know what? They're all the same. That's one thing that Brandon's always saying about the Italians. No, yeah, there's not a single difference. They all look the same. They all smell the same. It's like the green embers of of people. All right, folks, Brandon's getting racist. That means it's time for bed. Uh, There's a shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Brandon's getting racist. That means it's time for bed. Okay, my brain's leaking out my ears. Good night, Brandon. Good night, listener. Good night, Nathan. Goodbye. Goodbye.